Good afternoon and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, Chief Executive Officer, and we are so pleased to have you here today for a really a truly special edition of our Writers Live series. Now this afternoon, the reason why it's so special is we're celebrating one of Baltimore's most beautiful landmarks and also one of the favorite places of so many people to visit the Howard Peters Rawlings Conservatory and Botanical Gardens in this city's Druid Hill Park. Pause and applause, that's what my thing says. <laughs> now this dazzling conservatory is the second oldest glass house in America, and I don't think many people realize that, you know that. And today what we're doing though is applauding its beauty with an amazing book and the great author, Margaret Stansberry and her book, Glass House of Dreams. Now, if you haven't had a chance, and I know many of you have had a chance to flip through the pages of this book, it really feels as though you're being transported into the conservatory. And mainly, that feeling of being transported is the result of the gorgeous, that's the only way to describe them, photographs of David Simpson, who's here with us today. And he captures the elegance of not only the conservatory's architecture, but the beauty of the flowers and the plants within. And so today, after the book discussion and author signing, I invite all of you to go down to the second floor, if you haven't had a chance to, see a special exhibit called The Glass House of Dreams. And it talks also about the history, the 150-year history of Druid Hill Park. This is a special occasion for so many reasons that we are truly honored to be here to introduce a person that will introduce Peggy Stansbury. And as you know, the conservatory is dedicated and named after the late Howard Pete Rawlings, former Maryland delegate of the 40th district and powerhouse in this state. So joining us today is his wife and the mother of our current mayor, Stephanie Rawlings Blake. Please welcome to the Central Library, Dr. Nina Rawlings. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful, wonderful celebration, book signing and celebration of this beautiful, beautiful book. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the author. You probably know most of this because I saw most of you with books, so you read a little bit of it in your, in your book already. But Margaret Peggy Stansbury has a long-standing commitment to the community, to all of the communities of Baltimore, but, and especially to um, Druid Hill Park and the horticultural societies. In a role as a community leader, Peggy founded the nonprofit Baltimore Conservatory Association and led the efforts to preserve the architectural treasure in her book, Glass House of Dreams, Baltimore's Victorian Glass Palace in the Park. She also founded the Federal Hill Garden Club and chaired the committee that restored the revitalized historic Federal Hill Park. Peggy also served as commissioner on the Baltimore City Parks Board and as a district director and executive board member of the Federated Garden Clubs of Maryland. 
In all of these endeavors, Peggy brings special energy and passion to all her projects. The beautiful renovated Howard Peters Rawlings Conservatory in Jude Hill Park and this exquisite new book published in time for the 150th anniversary of the park are a tribute to my late husband, Delegate Rawlings, and an example of the dedication and love that Peggy has shown for this historic building. Now, I'll tell you a tiny, tiny bit about my personal dealings with Peggy. I first met her, I can't tell you exactly how long ago, but I know her children, she had two little boys, two of the dearest little boys, and they were little. And now one of them is 20 years old, and the other one is how old? 17. So it had to be years ago. And I met her through my husband because Peggy wanted to talk to him about the conservatory. And I understand that Peggy mentioned the word Drude Hill Park, and that's all she had to say was Drude Hill Park, and he was sold on helping her with anything that had to do with Drude Hill Park, because Drude Hill Park was where we had our first date. <laughs> <laughs> so thank goodness for Drude Hill Park, and <laughs> thank goodness for Peggy and this wonderful, wonderful book, and thank you all so much for coming out. Thank you, everyone, for coming out on this cold, rainy day when you could be home by a fire. But this, is, I, this has been so much fun for me to be at this library and have this direct connection to history. And I just have to thank Dr. Carla Hayden for everything she's done for me. It's just been amazing, the support. This is my first book, and to have this type of support is, is absolutely incredible. And I don't know how to thank Dr. Hayden, but thank you from the bottom of my heart. Also, Judy Cooper, who's head of programs, it's been so supportive, and Jack Young with graphic um, design has been super incredible and did that incredible display on the second floor if you saw it. And I want to make sure that I say, um, if David Simpson could stand up, please, just so if people afterwards can see. David is a photographer. And I have to tell you, I would not have done this book if I hadn't met David Simpson. I spent six years with a nonprofit, getting a board together, raising the money, but I never would have thought in a million years to write a book about it. And David did a beautiful book on Lock Raven Reservoir that I bought many copies of, and I had the opportunity to meet David, and he very generously encouraged me to write a book. And we, very shortly after meeting, decided to write the book together. And, of course, I had to go back to my graphic designer that had done pro bono work for the Conservatory in Druidal Park when we started trying to restore this building in 1997, Paula Simon. Paula, if you can just stand up and give a wave. Um, Paula loves flowers, loves gardens, travels the world, and does garden speeches. And Paula did all the graphic design for the nonprofit Pro Bono. So her heart was in it from the very beginning. So when I met David, uh, you know, I said I have to call Paula. So I really had a dream team, and I continue to have a dream team with all my supporters. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, I just, this is kind of a fun story, how I came up with the name Glass House of Dreams. When we're sitting in Druid Hill Park, we were having monthly board meetings, and we said that the movie was out, Field of Dreams, and build it and they would come. And so one night I was like, that's the name, Glass House of Dreams. Build it and they'll come. So that's how the, the title came up.
Now, this goes back to how I actually met David and decided to do a book. Um, I decided that I would be able to write the history of the book and the history of the park and why we ever got a glass house in Baltimore, and then I could have David do the beautiful pictures of how it looks now. So I decided I'd use antique postcards to illustrate what the park looked like. And it's a beautiful way because it just gives you a feeling in time, a gentle time. Then, you know, of course, there wasn't, you know, Internet and texting and cell phones. And people would actually have a date in the morning, like Dr. Rawlings. And you'd have the, people would have dates there and actually go out and get note cards and postcards and send a little note to each other. So it was really fun collecting the cards and reading the stories. But I decided I would illustrate the park and the conservatory using these antique postcards. And one of the very first postcards I was able to find, on the back of it, it's dated from 1940. And this is shortly after I met David, who had written the book about Lock Raven. And it says, you know, we we arrived here at 4 o'clock standard time, went to supper and bowling. Yesterday we went to see Lock Raven, and it was beautiful. And I thought, if that's not a sign... (laughs) <laughs> so off, off I was going. <laughs> Glass houses in general, I, I just was always fascinated by them. I loved this building as a child, had fond memories of it. And um, I just want to give you a little background on how glass houses really came to, Merrill, uh, to America. In 1848, there was the beautiful um, Royal Palm House at Kew Gardens, and that is just magnificent. And, then, uh, and it's still there today, and you can still visit And then, of course, uh, they did a lot of great exhibitions and world fairs, and that's how people would really learn at that time. They'd have the best architects, the best landscape people. And they had, um, for the London's Great Exhibit in 1857, they had this incredible crystal palace that was designed just for the fair by Joseph Paxton. And then um, we had one, the first one in America was 1853. It was the Glass House at New York's World's Fair, followed up with Horticultural Hall at Philadelphia, and unfortunately, we, we lost both of those um, buildings by fire. To come along to 1879, there was a very wealthy um, gentleman. In, um, in America, you had you know, some people with extreme wealth that actually could have conservatories at their homes. And this gentleman actually had, um, was planning on doing a conservatory at his home, but, but unfortunately passed away before it was built. And a number of very good people, like are sitting in this room, got together and said, let's do a public conservatory in San Francisco. And so that, that's how the Conservatory of Flowers came about in Golden Gate Park. And it's still there. It's still beautiful. And that's 1879. So ours is 1888. And so we can really claim that we have the second oldest glass house in, in um, America. And I think Baltimoreans, we really don't take enough time to recognize and say what a great place Baltimore is and what wonderful buildings we have. So hopefully this book will get some attention for this beautiful uh, treasure in our city. Now, how we got a, um, a park in Baltimore goes back to 1860. The mayor then was Thomas Swan. And there was just a whole movement excuse me, in, um, in America to have green space. People were very tired. They were stressed. They, they needed a gathering place. So it was the beginning of the American parks movement. And so it was happening in, in, in the major cities, in Philadelphia, of course, in New York, and also in Baltimore. So we were fortunate enough to have Mayor Thomas Swan get on the bandwagon and he appointed John Latrobe, who was an attorney by trade, but also a poet and artistic, to head up the Baltimore City Park Commission and locate land for Baltimore's first park. So you could really say Mayor Thomas Swan was our founders of parks in Baltimore. And they identified the Buchanan Rogers estate um, as this would be a, a perfect place to purchase and have as a Baltimore park. 
So then they had to hire, okay, we have our green space, how are we going to design it? So they actually hired Howard Daniels, and he was a cemetery designer. And interestingly enough, in finding this, um, doing this research, before public parks, a gathering place for people were the cemeteries. And they had landscape designers do them, and people would gather and meet there. And so there was a natural transition. And he was very well-known and respected in his field. He competed for Central Parks, which, of course, um, uh, the Olmsted um, did, but he was a finalist in the competition for New York. So we were very wise in hiring Howard Daniels, and he laid out what the park should look like, taking this wonderful estate and making it a public park. And then they turned around and hired a 19-year-old architect, George Aloysius Frederick, to be the architect. And you all are familiar with our city hall. He designed that. Well, he ended up designing um, our glass house, too. So that kind of gives you a little bit of background on how we got our first park. And once again, I use these beautiful old postcards just to show what the park looked like and what the park felt like. One of my biggest obstacles, and I hope to overcome some of this in, with this book, is so many people say, oh, I won't go there, it's not safe. The park is safe, the park's beautiful. I encourage people to you know, take Cold Spring and make a left onto Green Spring, and you come right into this gorgeous green space. So I really hope to make some inroads in, in trying to get people to support the park. And they have a great group called Friends of Druid Hill that are really supporting the park. So it's, it's a wonderful space, and we should be very proud of it, and we should take care of it. Now, this is the sad part. Baltimore actually had four glass houses around Baltimore. And I haven't had the chance yet to research this because I want to know why they went away. Obviously, we had the Depression. We had the flight to the suburbs. It was after the war. But this beautiful building was actually in Patterson Park. And we also had them in Carroll Park and Clifton Park. And when our little nonprofit got together in 1997, I have to tell you, our glass house had probably the days were numbered, and I had that from people in the city have told me that the days were numbered. Now the park also has incredible civil rights history, so I actually had to, I had to include this in my book. Um, so many people come to me and, and they say, "Oh, I love the park. I used to go to the park," and everybody talks about the clay the clay uh, tennis courts and how they loved going there. And um, so, the, and this, as I said, had significant civil rights um, history because the park was segregated. So they had pools for whites, pools for blacks, tennis courts for blacks, tennis courts for whites. So in 1948, the Progressive Party of Maryland got together, took a park permit out, and did an integrated tennis match. Well, of course, the police were called, people were arrested, and, the, and it actually went up all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court chose not to hear it, but it was the beginning of integration of our park system. So 1997 comes along, and I'm actually on the, at the point that... Um, I was appointed to the Baltimore Parks Commission. So in uh, all those years later, before the Baltimore Parks Commission's built the conservatory, and now 1997, I'm, join, I'm forming this a nonprofit. And the reason that came about is I married uh, my husband, Richard Stansberry, in 1984, who was a true blue city boy. And I moved down to Federal Hill. He loved the houses, and he loved the feel of it. And um, I noticed nobody put flowers out or window boxes, and it was very cold and sterile to me. So I thought if people just put flowers out and make it more welcoming and, and beautiful. So we actually hired a wholesaler and bought a truckload of fall mums, and we called it the Fall Flower Fest. 
And it, for wholesale costs, I think it was $3 for a bunch of moms, neighbors signed up and got a, a, a thing of moms. Well, the whole, we, the whole neighborhood was transformed, transformed on a weekend, and it was just glorious. And the people that were away that weekend said, I have to get flowers. I've got to do a window box. And now if you go there in the community now, you would never believe that story that people didn't put flowers out because it's all you know, beautifully done. Um, so as a result of that, we, I started the Federal Hill Garden Club, and then my next job was working on restoring Federal Hill Park. And after opening our home up for two or three years and, and doing that, that restoration, uh, the mayor, Kurt Schmoke, asked me to cut the yellow ribbon for the reopening of the park. And I said, well, we can't just cut a yellow ribbon. We need to do an evening of living history because this is an important park to America. And so we have to show them what it means so people take care of it. So after doing that evening of living history, I was appointed to Baltimore's Park Board. So then I would drive up to Druid Hill Park, and I see this beautiful glass house that I loved as a child falling down, and I said, that's my next project. So that's how I got there. I got wonderful volunteers to join the board. Paula was a, a person, as I mentioned. Dennis Fiore headed up Maryland Historical Society. I had people from different counties, just a great group of people that you know, worked in trying to build this, bring this building back. But if, we, if I hadn't had the opportunity to go to Annapolis with Federated Garden Clubs, and meet Delegate Pete Rawlings. He supported this with my first $500,000 bond bill. And if I hadn't got that initial great support, I don't know if we'd still have that glass house in Druid Hill Park. So as a result of uh, Delegate Rawlings' incredible support um, and, and encouragement, uh, it was renamed the Howard Peters Rawlings Conservatory. So uh, the way the book flows and the way my slide presentation flows is it's really how the conservatory flows. In the front, you have the beautiful 1888 Palm House, Victorian Palm House, and then it's the original Orchid Room. And then when we started the project, the three greenhouses in the back actually had dirt floors, and we wanted to reprogram those greenhouses to really show the different climates around the world. So now, now they're the programmed to show Mediterranean, uh, tropical, and desert. And so I like to say, in one day, you can take a trip around the world. And Delegate Rawlings and I also had a passion for education, because I was living in the city, and I saw these young children that had absolutely no future. And I thought horticulture is a multi-billion dollar industry. If we can introduce horticulture to the classrooms, then these kids can grow up and they can be landscape, landscapers, floral designers, botanists. It would be, you know, endless. And that was really the passion that we shared together. So, um, so here is the Victorian Palm House, once again, 1888. And um, an interesting story, when we were working with the city and doing it, uh, one person in the city wanted to eliminate the tall palms in the, in the center and just have it open so they could do rental space to try to get income. And to me, that was the most glorious thing of that building, to walk in there and see the beautiful palms and just be embraced by them. So we said, mm, we don't think so. We're going to keep our palms. So The palms, too, are interesting. Um, I'm sure some of you, our gardeners in the room, are familiar with Carl Linnaeus, who did the classification naming system for flowers. It's over 300 years later, we still use the Latin name and then the common name. And he loved the palm so much that he named it Principes because he felt it was the prince of the plant kingdom. And the common name, palm, because it looks like the palm of your hand. Now we go into the orchid room. And the orchid room is it's one of the most popular displays, even though it's, it's a small room, but the, the flowers are exquisite. And um, 
They, there's over 30,000 species of orchids in the world, and it's one of every 10 flowering plants is an orchid. And people, I often find people say, oh, I love orchids, but they're difficult to grow, and they're not. So please go and see the orchids, and, and I'm sure the staff will be happy to you know, help you with orchids in your home. Now, as I mentioned to you, we're moving into the Mediterranean home. Uh, this is one house. This is one of my favorite areas. It just smells so wonderful when you walk in there, just really pungent. And this, of course, would be plants that are found by the Mediterranean Sea and also around California. But it's very vibrant with the bougainvillea that's there and a common name paper flower and the um, orange trees. And, of course, the olive tree, which reigns supreme as being the oldest uh, cultivated tree. Next, I love, absolutely love that picture. A uh, personal story. Um, David was doing a photo shoot, and uh, this person had never been to the conservatory, walked in, and a beautiful hat and a beautiful bamboo bag and was taking pictures, and we had a model release, and it just is one of my favorite pictures because it just shows the experience of walking into that tropical house. And there's a beautiful haliconia, the lobster claw, and, of course, the passion flower. But you, I really recommend people you know, to go there on a cold February day, and you really are stepping into the tropics. This is our desert house. Our desert house has made a lot of press. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that because of our agave that just bloomed. It's not this agave. It's an agave in the back, and it started blooming, and, and uh, Paul and I had a lot of fun with it because we were calling this book The Rebirthing of the Conservatory, and here we had this century plant, because it lives that long, start blooming. And once it blooms, it only blooms once. It's monocarpic, it's called. And once it blooms, it then unfortunately dies. So the whole entire plant dies. So we're doing this book. Well, a century plant, agave, starts blooming. They actually have to take a glass panel out of the roof, and it starts rising up. And unfortunately, three weeks ago, we got a frost, and so we lost our agave bloom. And we thought they didn't have any pups, and we were all kind of sad about it. And, and lo and behold, after reading a Sun Papers article, a gentleman says, I have a pup. I got one a few years ago. It was like a Charlie tree Christmas tree. Nobody wanted it, and I took it home and nursed it. So now I'm proud to say that our pup is returning, and we're going to have another celebration for our agave. And the desert's really fun, too, and this goes back to the educational component that I'm so passionate about because you can take school children in there and show them the African desert and the American desert. Where does coffee come from? Where does spices come from? Where does, you know, palms can be used for plant, uh, building materials? Just, there's just so much learning opportunities. So now we really try to turn, turn it into a living classroom, teach environmental, social, and cultural lessons. And it really is a place not only for all these beautiful exotic plants from all over the world, but, but for young people, old people. I just, it just warms my heart when I go there and see so many people enjoying the, the experience. So that's the Glass House of Dreams. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. And please, most importantly, go visit the Glass House of Dreams. How many has seen it since it's been renovated? All right. <laughs> um, please support it. We have a beautiful poinsettia show that just opened today, and it is magnificent. And that's just a wonderful afternoon to go see that show. Um, and there, it's a fun Baltimore story, too, because they do themes. Botanical gardens do themes when they do their shows. And this year's theme is the old Baltimore department stores. And it, people are just loving it. So, you know, go see it and enjoy the poinsettias. We have some flyers. We'll have them out at the, at the table with the books. But please, you know, support it, enjoy it, and encourage your friends to go. And you can also rent it for parties and receptions and whatever else. Any questions? Yes, lady in the red? 
Um, the reason it is, is because it protects the plants. The, the intense sun that comes down on the palms, that would actually burn the plants. So it's a, it's a milk paint, and it's really done for the plant um, protection. And it's kind of interesting because the Conservatory of Flowers in San Francisco also has that milk paint. And it's ironic because they don't need it. They don't have that sun. They have foggy days. But because it's historic, they did it in the beginning, they continue to do it. So it's just one of those things. So I know it's disappointing for people. It was hard for us to do the cover of the book because I showed David, you know, pictures of it when it was all clear glass. And, you know, David suggested I have it power washed. And I said, I, said, I don't think so. <laughs> um, so that was really a, really a challenge on how the heck could we do the cover of the book because it wasn't that clear glass that we did have great pictures of. But it's, it's really for the plant's best interest. Well, we have serious horticulturists there now. That the, um, the people, that the staff there are really super trained and really know the plants and you know, um, it, and the, the city didn't give that kind of attention to the plants. And, and you feel that when you walk in, you can see the plants are really loved and taken care of. So, but poor Kate has to get that argument a lot. So, but it's for the plants. Ellen? Peggy, is, is it a particular style of architecture? Um, good question. It's considered Victorian, but in our research, um, there is a palm house in Vienna. And the, uh, it's really a grand, beautiful palm house, and I had the opportunity to visit it. And there's a piece of that palm house, and I have it in my book, that looks exactly like this palm house. And Howard Daniels actually went to Europe and studied parks. He was the landscape designer of the city that hired. And also John Latrobe traveled to Europe and studied parks. So I, I kind of think that's very possible that there was strong influence on this 19-year-old architect. They very possibly could have seen this Vienna Palm House and influenced him in his design on this. And you can see it, I said, in the book with the, cover, with the, uh, the, um, with the Vienna Palm House similarities. Do we know it for sure? No, but certainly strong similarity. Sir? I worked for the city from 1974 to 1980. I used to know the city park, Cal Butman, and a bunch of people in horticulture. I did a lot of horticulture in the city. And... Uh, the reason for the death of the other conservatories, Patterson Park, Clifton, and the others, was that once the city fathers accepted all the personal bribes it took to destroy the streetcar system, they forgot that half the profits, the streetcar system, was reinvested into the parks. And the reason why Druido Park was one of the most beautiful parks in America was because it was constantly being reinvested in by the profits streetcars, and that's why you had the sumptuous pavilions, and city employees were there all the class. But once the city fathers took the bribe money and sold off the streetcars, they got rich, and the park system declined in revenue, so as a result, they had to keep one of their four conservatories, and this was the most visible one. But the one in Patterson Park, the Clifton, and elsewhere were just but it was money that killed them, not anything else. I, I think I really want to research that just because I find it interesting. You have people that will stand in front of a tree and say, you can't cut this tree down. So I just can't believe that there weren't people around Patterson Park and around Clifton that didn't you know, say, no, you know, we can't take this down. Any other questions? Is the city involved in the maintenance of this 
Absolutely. The city runs it. It's owned by the city. This was a nonprofit that was formed to raise the funds to restore it, and it's still, um, there's still a Baltimore Conservatory Association. I think the president had to leave because, ironically, we're having the opening of the poinsettia show today at the conservatory, so it's like we both had to be in different places today. But it's city-owned, but we have the nonprofit to help support it. But um, it, I'm hoping, too, with the book, it really hasn't had, the conservatory really hasn't had a lot of visibility. So I'm really hoping with the book it's going to get visibility. And there's many people that are very generous in Baltimore that we hope can get behind the conservatory and support it for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a nonprofit, 501-3C. And, but the, Kate Blum, the um, supervisor of the conservatory, is absolutely amazing. And, you know, with the budget cuts, you know, she got hit just like every other agency, the library, everybody else did. And she was able to hire, she has 12 people, but many of them are part-time. So they're hardly making any money, but they're trained horticulturists. So she has this dynamite staff, you know, and on a very limited budget. And I say if this place was in New York or Atlanta, I think it just would get incredible support. And part of it, I think, is because it's in an area of our city that people would say, oh, you know, it's not safe or this or that. So it's really um, important that we, you know, get the word out there. It is a safe environment and and a beautiful park. Two wonderful volunteers sitting in the front who are actually professors at MICA, and here they do that wonderful job at MICA, and then in their, volunt- in their free time, they actually come up and spend time volunteering at the conservatory, and, um, and we have a great, great volunteer group, and uh, I think people really enjoy going there and being in a peaceful environment and a beautiful, serene environment, so if you'd like to volunteer there, we'd love to have you, and, and you can meet some great folks, too. We went to press on July 27th, and in September, because of budget constraints, they reduced the day. So my book, it says it's open Tuesday through Sunday, but it's only open Wednesday through Sunday. And it's open from, that's one of my goals, is if we get people supporting it, we can get more hours there so people can go there. Um, but it's open Wednesday through Sunday, uh, 10 to 4. It's going to be closed Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So if you want to see the poinsettias, get there before. And it says that it is spectacular, this poinsettias. I had the pleasure of taking my kids when they were little every year to that conservatory and walking through the Christmas displays and poinsettia displays and walking through the old rear greenhouse. And uh, that orchid woman, the old greenhouse was exquisite. It was the entire length of it, not just a segment, it was the entire length of it. It was spectacular. Well, it looks great now. As I said, the staff there, Kate, does an amazing job, amazing job. Well, thank you again coming out. I really appreciate it.